Welcome to this very special episode of Sharing the Mic with Frontline Aids. I'm Ben Plumley, host of a Shot in the Arm podcast, and this is the second of two episodes that we've produced while we've been at the UN General Assembly in New York. Well, we're going to meet up with another of the partners of Frontline Aids and a very special new guest who is actually known to us at a Shot in the Arm podcast. First up, Cindy Kalemi, who is the executive director of Bonella from uh, Botswana. Cindy, hey, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we got a lot to discuss about the state of the AIDS response, and I know Bonella's at the right at the forefront of that. Um, and we're also joined by a friend of a Shot in the Arm podcast who has now got a new hat. She might not physically be wearing it, but please welcome the new executive director of Frontline AIDS, the Frontline AIDS partnership, Robin Gorner. Robin, hey, Hi. welcome to uh, sharing the mic formally. I'm delighted to be here. And it's just such a privilege to be here with so many of our partners. Um, lovely to be back with Shot in the Arm, but uh, great to be with Frontline AIDS. In the first part of the show, we we spoke to some of the key um, linking organization partners on the ground, listening to how the uh, this week is shaping up. And, and I just wondered, maybe at the 38,000 foot level for you both, just picking up on this sense that um, we may be we may be sort of regressing, going back in time, uh, and uh, not engaging civil society as we might have done in the past. Um, is that your sense? I don't know, Cindy. If you want to, yes, and that's precisely why um, someone like me is here, who works at a country level, to echo the message that you know pandemics um, start within communities and therefore they end within communities. Therefore, there is no how we can have all these discussions at the exclusion of communities. And civil society are an integral part of the community. Therefore, if we are having these discussions at the exclusion of civil society, really how are we going to ensure sustainabilities of or sustainability of the issues we are talking about. Because like the speaker from Arasa said earlier on, that, you know, the accountability framework is really hinged on civil society because they are the ones who then take these documents that have been agreed upon and hold their respective governments accountable for delivery. And more often than not, we do get these policy documents at a, a global level, and then they don't get implemented because civil society was sidelined. So we are here to, 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 to send the message that it's important for civil society to be part of the discussions because they are an integral part of the equation. Yeah. Robin, you and I have been on all sides of the fence um, the UN, in, in your case, the UK government, um, civil society as well. Um, what's your sense of this mm. decline, if, that, if I can call it that? It's, it's always for me intensely moving coming back to New York because I was here a lot in the 80s and 90s and had a lot of friends who are no longer here because they died from AIDS. And um, 
It's also intensely moving because the first time I came to a UN General Assembly was 2001 and I came as a representative of um, an AIDS organisation in civil society. And since that time, I've been back with the government pass and I've been back with the UN pass. And I'm so glad to be back with an NGO pass again. But having lived through those, what, 22 years of coming back and forth to Unga um, and coming back and forth in different roles, I just totally agree with what Cindy said about the disappointment at the lack of community. Um, and, you know, when we were here in 2001, we were lobbying for the creation of the Global Fund and we were really successful, right? Um, but civil society back then did some pretty, you know, tough, tough negotiating and pushed hard. And we pushed hard in the declarations and we've pushed hard again and it's not coming through enough. It's really not. The first time I joined you in Shot in the Arm is when I was living with long COVID and we were fighting hard to get people with lived experience of COVID into the national responses. And I was very moved a couple of days ago, the French global health ambassador, Ambassador Ambrou, uh, I think I've just mangled her name, but um, she spoke about the fact that in France, they they switched direction about a year into the COVID epidemic because they realised they'd basically forgotten to involve communities and they weren't getting the response right. And as we have this pandemic preparedness declaration that thank goodness has come through, I mean, that's good because for a minute we thought it was not going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's still not strong enough on communities. And if we know anything from the AIDS response, what we know is that it is only possible to make a change if communities are at the heart. Um, a lot of people look to the AIDS response and say, oh, it's done now. Now, I don't think we do think it's done. I just had a great meeting with a number of the partners of Frontline AIDS this morning. And it's, you know, in some countries like your own, Cindy, I mean, you've achieved huge results, 95, 95, 95. All credit to Botswana. Now, just explain what the 95 means in this context. Okay, so 95% of people who are living with HIV know their status. And then 95 of those who know their status are actually on treatment. Um, and 95% of those who are in, on treatment are virally suppressed. But for Botswana, it's actually 95, 97, 98. It's 5, 2, 2. <laughs> That's what we are dealing with now. <laughs> and it's kind of amazing, isn't it? And yet we've got to make sure that the world doesn't go, oh, that's good enough. I mean, it is pretty amazing. Um, but we still have globally 1.5 million infections a year. And I think that's too many. And we have countries like your neighbouring South Africa where far too many people, some say two and a half million, are not on treatment right now. What's that about? Um, and we've got, you know, 600,000 deaths a year. And those numbers are unacceptably high. So somehow we have to hold the balance, I think, as organisations that are focused on AIDS or began in the AIDS movement to say, we've got to keep the pressure on with AIDS. And things are a heck of a lot better. And they're better because communities are at the heart. And they're better because of the Global Fund. They're better because of PEPFAR. They're better because of national governments. But fundamentally, they're better because communities are doing the right thing, advocating for the rights of people, as well as delivering services. And that's the mix we need for making sure we sustain our successes and supporting the pandemics that will come in the future and making sure we also get access to universal health coverage for the most marginalised communities that we have got fundamentally at our core. Yeah. And, and one thing to add to this, um, which is really driven by community, that, um, what, 
98, 99% mm -hmm. of people who are undetectable, that means they're also untransmissible. Yes. U equals U. And of course, uh, Michael Igataro, who is a board member of Frontline AIDS, is also um, one of the new leaders of the Prevention Action Campaign pushing that agenda. It's, it's really terrific to hear. But um, I, I guess enough looking at the past, where do we go from here? Um, some people are saying, and, and, um, and Tombi referred to this, the, the sustainable development goals that are supposed to be met by 2030, and which I guess means that HIV is over in some way. Um, I, I think it's fair to say we're not going to reach those goals. But what should the long-term policy and advocacy agenda be for the HIV response in the context of the pandemic era post-COVID? Yeah, um, I think that um, prevention still needs to be at the top of our priorities because we should um, remember that there are children who are born um, now who do not have the same experience that we do. Um, there are people who are afraid of somebody of, of catching um, HIV because they have seen somebody um, who, who is HIV positive or at least we sick from AIDS. Um, and yet we have a generation that has never experienced that. So we need to be now coming up with innovative ideas of how we make um, um, prevention work, especially for our young people. Um, when you look at our numbers, at least for Botswana, when you look at condom usage, it's at its lowest. Yet um, we still have new infections every single day. So how do we ensure that we, our, our programs are relevant to the extent that they can respond effectively to the needs um, of our young people, especially insofar as um, um, AIDS is concerned? I think we, we need um, innovation. Um, a lot of times um, there is a feeling that there is fatigue, AIDS fatigue. Um, we need to address that head on. Because like um, Robin is saying, the, the, the war against AIDS is not over. In fact, in some um, communities, it has just begun. So we need then to be um, responsive and relevant in terms of our programs so that we can ensure that we end AIDS by 2030. I mean, I'd want to go one stage further. I'm, gonna, I'm going to borrow Robin's older hats as a, a, and, and, and be as perhaps more provocative than I have been in the past. I think our HIV prevention uh, approaches over the last 30 years, frankly, in the global south have been a disaster. They have not worked. We really haven't, despite the UNAIDS figures, we really haven't seen a significant drop in new infections over the last 15 years. And and I don't know why that is. I, I, I do think the political will is right at the heart of it. Um, the condoms, the uh, abstinence, behavior change, mm -hmm. those were our tools. Uh, we now have PrEP, mm -hmm. um, pre-exposure prophylaxis in pill form, hopefully in injectable form at some point. But I don't understand why we haven't been able to crack this. Well, and let's not forget with PrEP, we also have the depivirine vaginal ring. And for some of us who are youth activists who've 
been youth activists for a few decades, so we've aged a little. Mm-hmm. We'll remember that back in the 80s and 90s, we were pushing for a microbicide, something that women could use for themselves. Now we have it, and yet a bunch of old men sitting in America have said, oh, we don't think we want to approve this. You know, we have got to get the tools that we have mm-hmm. into the hands of the young women, men and non-binary and, you know, gender diverse people that they need, that they want. And I think we've got to start talking about sex again. I mean, it's extraordinary how we can talk about HIV and not talk about sex and not talk about pleasure and not talk about what the drivers of this infection are. And and the reason HIV and AIDS attract so much stigma and attract so much difficulty in our world and why it became such a major issue is because it's right at that nexus of where we gain pleasure in life and things that we don't like to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was really struck by a few conversations over the last few days with um, the youth leaders that we have. Um, and we have the, you know, a great intergenerational dialogue going in amongst the partnership of, of Frontline AIDS and, and also more broadly here. Young people are the majority in Africa. And they are making change in their societies, but they don't always have as much voice. Um, and yesterday I had the privilege of attending a meeting of the First Ladies of Africa. I was some spectacular discussions, some really brave and bold visions from some of those First Ladies. And then a young woman stood up and she said, you've got to co-lead with us. I want each of you First Ladies to have a young person in your office working with you. Massive applause. Because ultimately... Societies won't change unless we let young people lead and ask for what they need. And I think that's partly where we're get, getting it a bit wrong. We've, we've made it a little bit polite. And part of the issue here is it's not always polite. The other thing that we were talking about yesterday, and I think this is really important to our mission as frontline aides, is that there are so many other sexually transmitted conditions as well as pregnancy and other sexually transmitted condition um, that are <laughs> affecting our young people. Um, 90, every 90 seconds, a young person gets cervical cancer. And yet this is one of the most easily preventable, um, of diseases, of cancers with a, with HPV vaccination. It is easily treatable. And yet the rates of death in Africa are extraordinarily high. They're eight times as high as the rest of the world. Why are we not doing more to link together our HIV, our cervical cancer, our programs on FGS will hearts here, which is again another condition that make is more makes women and girls much more vulnerable to HIV. Mm-hmm. We really need to look at this intersection because when you walk around this world, you don't think HIV one day, cervical cancer the next, pregnancy the third. It's about what's going on in our lives. What makes us vulnerable? How do we deal with poverty? And you know, as frontline aides. We're also really totally focused on marginalized communities. So also on our refugees and in internally displaced people, huge increasing numbers there. Let's think about prisoners. Let's think about drug users. The people in society that maybe politicians don't always want to think about first, these are the people that we as community organizations know need to be at the heart of everything we do. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's right. That's yeah. right. And, and and just to add that um, the issue around inequalities as well, it's a problem for us, especially in Southern Africa. I think, um, and that that's what breeds, um, for instance, issues around gender-based violence, where women are unable to negotiate um, safe sex in relationships because the, the relationships are, are too toxic and, um, you know, 
when you look at the context of Botswana as an example, we are one of the leading countries in the world with rape incidents. So it's not surprising that we also have such high um, HIV um, 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 incidents. So un until we begin to really in earnest address some of these drivers of HIV, including um, um, gender-based violence, then we are really losing um, the, the, the battle. We also need to look in, at, at inequalities. For instance, we know that um, women who have not been to school um, are more susceptible to getting HIV. We also know that, um, for instance, girls who are not retained in schools are also susceptible to, 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 to HIV infections. So how do we... We know that, um, for instance, most of the, um, or at least a good number of sex workers in the sex work industry, some of them are as a result of unemployment and poverty. How do we address all those underlying issues so that we can effectively address uh, or reduce the incidence of HIV? So it, it basically needs for us to really look into our programs and ensure that they respond to the needs of people holistically. I've, well, yeah. just, I mean, just building on that, I think it's such a, an important point. And, you know, one of the slogans has always been human rights is women's rights, you know. And, and as frontline aides, the, the core of our model is the intersection between health, human rights and community. And one of the problems that worries me at the moment is people say, of all the health conditions, HIV is handled. But it's not a health condition. It's a rights issue. It's a life issue. And that's where we need to start putting the person at the centre of this and thinking about what are we doing? How are we addressing equity? How are we addressing rights? And when you ask about, you know, why are things not going as well as they should be? Of course, it's about rights mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And, you know, and we know that there has been quite a lot of pushback on rights, yeah. especially in Southern Africa. That's why we have draconian laws um, such as the one we have in Uganda, which basically criminalizes um, LGBTIQ um, plus persons in the most unprecedented um, we've ever seen anywhere else. So that's an indication of how, um, you know, our failure to address HIV as a human rights issue. Mm. Um, it's really making us fail in terms of reaching epidemic control. And within that as well, one of the horrors of the Ugandan situation is it criminalizes directly the individuals. Mm -hmm. It also criminalizes the service providers. So there is no longer an incentive to provide services for LGBTQI human beings because then if a service provider could also be thrown in jail as well as the individuals being sentence with death. And this is on the march across a number of African countries. And we know there's foreign influence behind this. Oh, I was going to say, let's be really direct about it. Um, it's far-right Christian nationalism from the United States that has been trying and trying and trying to get these laws passed um, in in Kenya, all of us, uh, sorry, not Kenya, um, Uganda. So many of us have been working on this, taking the lead from groups like sexual minorities, Uganda, really to help help counter this. And it strikes me that uh, there's something that um, uh, Jupram from Kana said in relation to pandemics, preparedness and response, that no one is safe until everyone is mm -hmm. safe. Well, the flip side is true. Um, if someone is at risk, we are all at risk. 
and don't we should not assume that these kind of laws stop in Uganda. Um, they are going to try to be played out yes. everywhere. Well, and they are on the march. I mean, we know that there are many, many countries in Africa right now where this kind of legislation is teetering on the edge of the legislature. So, so we really know that. And it's about how do we build those coalitions? But how do we also let our communities in Africa lead this? I mean, it's also happening in other countries, like Indonesia has also got a really repressive law right now. Things have tightened up in Malaysia too. But we need to make sure, and, and, and that's what's fundamentally important to us at Frontline AIDS is, as angry as it makes all of us, we've got to hear from communities what's the smart thing to do in country, because we know there are external influences mm -hmm. generating this. And how can we, you know, most Ugandans I speak to say, this is not Uganda morality. You know, we have always had our gay communities and we have mm. celebrated and integrated them in our society. So, you know, why are we being told that this is an African response to be anti-homosexuality? That's not true. So let's try and find continental solutions, I think, to to turn this around. Yeah. And I th I think um, it's 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 an important time to talk about investment and mm. um, investment into the response because um, the forces that you are talking about, which are basically um, sponsoring um, you know these religious um, extremists, um, are, are fully funded, well funded, and coordinated. So in the same way, we also need to have um, civil society. Um, interventions, responses, fully funded. And um, we have to do more in ensuring that there is actually money available to support um, these interventions. Because we can see that the, the religious um, ex extremists or fundamentalists basically are organized and they have support. So we also need to, to do the same in order for us to really turn the tide against these bad laws that are affecting Africa. Yeah, totally. And so two reflections on what, you're, what you have both said. Um, the, fir the first, Cindy, around this sort of whole person approach, mm -hmm. uh, without mentioning names, um, a very senior civil servant in, um, uh, in Zimbabwe's um, health response um, I asked her not not too far, uh, not too long ago, what would be the single most important intervention we should really be focusing on in taking the HIV response to the next level? And she really surprised me. The single most important intervention was girls' secondary education. And that really struck a, a, a nerve with me, but it really reaffirms, I think, this sense that um, you don't look at HIV as something that you deal with on a Monday and Thursday. Mm -hmm. It's it's something that s exploits the weaknesses of our societies mm -hmm. and the um, uh, and 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 uh, sort of dehumanizes the weakest um, or the most marginalized amongst us. The second thing, Robin, thinking about what you said, I think you're absolutely right that. Um, us Northerners need to shut up and listen and be led by uh, uh, leaders on the ground, mm -hmm. leaders in countries who are facing this directly. Um, you, you know, take Uganda as, as an example. Frank Mugisha and his team have a very clear agenda. And, um, you know, it is uh, incumbent on us to listen and follow 
It's yep. not incumbent on us to say, well, we'll take bits of this and we'll use it to, we'll go and protest outside, whatever. So as you leave New York at the end of this week, what are the priorities for you? Cindy, what, what are you going to take back? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm hoping um, that um, the the documents will be adopted, the political documents will be adopted, and um, once we once they are adopted, we are really will be really happy about that because we worked really hard in ensuring that they really um, speak to the needs um, of our uh, respective societies, and I think a lot of what we recommended has been um, embraced. And we are we are really happy uh, about that. But the the bigger um, thing for me is that we need to ensure implementation. And our role as civil society is to hold our governments to account to the commitments they have made. Um, I want to recall when the African uh, continent came together and agreed um, through the uh, Abuja Declaration that fifteen percent of our um, of our national budgets will be allocated to health. How many of them have achieved that? What accountability mechanisms um, have we used to hold them to account? Um, I want to believe not much is, is happening there. It's almost like a song that everybody knows that 15% should be, but then what is happening um, uh, about it? So in the same way, we don't want um, history to repeat itself. We really want to take these documents with us to go to the country level because at a global level, they mean nothing unless they are integrated or the, 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 the priorities are integrated into national strategic frameworks. So we have to ensure that whatever has been agreed at a, a, a global level is actually um, we are able to, you know, to 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 integrate it into our our national frameworks. That's the first step. And then um, we also need to ensure that at a national level we have mechanisms for monitoring and tracking. That is critical, so that um, at the end of it all we can look back and say. This is the change that was brought about by this global commitment at a country level when we are realizing that people have better access to services, when we realize that people, um, you know, they are not, they don't have much uh, out of pocket expenditure, that they are receiving, um, you know, decent um, health services, that the health providers are providing services that are non-discriminatory. For us, that would be the indicator of success. Robin, I, I guess you are in listening mode and we've got a very clear um, set of priorities there set out by, by Cindy. You're, what, three weeks now into the job? Um, That's day 11. Day 11. What are you hearing? <laughs> I mean, I think the points Cindy's making there about accountability are so important. And we talked before about the fact that I've been here with, you know, a UN hat on and a government hat on. And in those hats, everybody gets obsessed about getting the right words on the page. I've even been negotiating semicolons at 3 a.m. You know, you've got to get the text right. The text is meaningless if it doesn't get implemented. And some countries are great at that. And some countries are lousy. They sign up to any old word. So this is really 
a key component of the community response. But as you say, I have been listening. I've got a lot more listening to do. Um, and it's really so important to hear what the needs are. Most of our partners are expanding their remit, but keeping AIDS central or building on what they know from AIDS. So it's also thinking about what can we do better as we serve and support the partners of Frontline AIDS to make that easy for them. One of the really big messages they're giving is about money. I mean, we all know there's an awful lot less money available for HIV and AIDS. And in part, that's because there's been great success and there's a sense of where well, we, we do need to focus on other emerging priorities. I think that's correct and right. However, there's a real danger that the gains will be lost that there will be resurgence, that we will lose the importance of the investments we've made. So one of the things that I think will be part of my role is to support our partners by staying in good contact with a range of donors and seeing what's possible um, and creating space. I mean, the whole point of Frontline AIDS was always that these community organisations existed mm -hmm. and we were creating space to support them to engage with each other. And we've just had a really fantastic conversation where they've given me a few marching orders, I think, about how we can do that better and stronger um, because it's not our job at a global level to tell community-based partners what to do. It never was and it never will be. But it is our job to see if there's things that we can do to support those connections and to support that learning. And I think this point on funding is so important. There's loads of money comparative to what there ever was in the Global Fund and not enough of that is getting to the communities. And I'm really proud that so many of the um, Global Fund uh principal recipients from the community are partners of Frontline AIDS, especially when you remember that Frontline AIDS as the International AIDS Alliance was created long before the Global Fund, over a decade in advance. So how incredible that partners are doing that. But we need to make sure that more and more of that money is being accessed by community organisations and delivered where it matters. And PEPFAR, let's just take a moment to praise PEPFAR. I mean, what an incredible thing that has been over less than 20 years, a total game changer. And it has kept so many millions of people alive, mm. stopped so many millions of infections. And I think, like so many of us, I'm terrified. Mm. Well, I hope, continue. I hope we're not going to say that PEPFAR has been such an, uh, a, a major game changer, but that PEPFAR is and will continue to be uh, a major game changer. Because as you said, uh, we haven't ended AIDS. We are not even in the final stretches. Well, I guess I should let you get back to the good work, getting into good trouble at the UN. <laughs> Cindy, thank you so much. Um, really looking forward to hearing how Botswana gets to 100, 100, 100. <laughs> <laughs> they always say the last sprint is the hardest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then teaches everyone else how to get there, because that's the other big role that <laughs> <Yeah>. you have. <laughs> and and Robin, good luck on your, your listening tour, and uh, we'll be coming back to check in with you to see how things are going. So thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank Ryan. you so much for having us. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Cindy and thanks to Robin. Thanks also to our director and producer, Eric Espera from Newsdoc Media. Our New York producer, Chad Parisman. Thanks also to Ali Liu from Frontline Aids. Hope you enjoyed these two episodes and look forward to seeing you again soon.